Do you ever think when whoever is scheduled to read comes out here and they set an open Bible, or if they have it on this, they set this down here. Do you ever think, God, thank you that what we have up here is your word? It's not the words of man. It's not my idea. It's not, it's not a prearranged script to somebody else. It, this is God's word. And it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I remember reading one time about Francis Schaeffer. Some of you will know who that is. In his older age, not long before he died, he reached over to his nightstand and just put his hand on his Bible and said, I'm so thankful that I have this book. What better book is there? So our reading from this best of all books this morning comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 16 and read through chapter 4 and verse 3. If you have one of these Bibles from the table in the back, you'll find that on page 554. Ecclesiastes three sixteen through chapter 4 and verse 3. This is going to sound like a very despairing passage. And it is because it's viewing life apart from God. And sometimes it's really helpful for us to see what life is like if God were not in the picture So that's why this passage sounds despairing, because it's a view of life apart from God. So here, please, the word of God, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word.
Well, chapter 4, verse 3 ends with that phrase. Better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who's not seen the evil activity that's done under the sun. Unfortunately, we're not in that camp. We are in the camp of the living, and we get a front row seat every single day of our lives to the evil activity that's done under the sun. All you got to do is turn the news on every night. You know, every society has to provide its people with a framework for understanding suffering. And that framework has to include some understanding of the causes of pain as well as a proper response to it. And with that framework, a society then can equip the people for the battles of living in this world and the challenges that they will all surely meet. However, not every society does this equally well. Our own contemporary Western society gives its members no explanation for suffering and very little guidance as to how to deal with it. I mean, for an example, just days after the Newtown, Connecticut shootings back in December, Maureen Dowd entitled her December 25th New York Times column, Why God? And printed a Catholic priest's response to the massacre. Almost immediately, there were hundreds of comments in response to the column's counsel. Most agreed with it, most disagreed with it, but tellingly, they disagreed in very different ways indicating that there was no clear framework that our society has for understanding suffering at all. Some held to the idea that it was just karma, that the suffering was in, that it was in the present was paying for sins in past lives. Others referred to the illusory nature of the material world that comes from Buddhism. Still, others accepted the traditional Christian view that heaven is a place of reunion with loved ones and will serve as consolation for suffering on earth. Some alluded to how suffering makes you stronger, implicitly drawing on the thought of Stoic and pagan philosophers from ancient Greece and Rome. Others added that since this world is all we have, any attempt to find some sort of spiritual consolation only weakens our proper response to suffering. Namely, it makes us crippled and doesn't move us to action toward ending the causes of suffering. The only proper response to suffering in this view was to make the world a better place. So as you can see, the responses to that column alone were evidence that our own culture gives people almost no tools for dealing with tragedy. Commenters had to look to many other cultures and religions, Hindu, Buddhist, Confucianist, classical Greek, and Christian, to address the darkness of the moment. People were left to fend for themselves. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly where we're left when we look at suffering and injustice under the sun. We're left to fend for ourselves to make sense of tragedy and difficulty and pain 
and suffering and injustice. And it's that perspective that Solomon wants to draw our attention to this morning as he brings us back down under the sun and says, how do we make sense of injustice and evil and oppression in the world under the sun? I want us to look at this text under three points this morning. First, what he sees. What does he observe under the sun? And we see this in verse 16 and in chapter 4, verse 1. Let's see those. Chapter 3, verse 16. I also observed under the sun, there is wickedness at the place of judgment. And there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. And then chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are pressed. They have no one to comfort them. So he sees wickedness at the place of judgment, chapter 3, verse 16. And he sees, chapter 4, verse 1, acts of oppression. So he sees injustice and he sees oppression under the sun. Now, it might be helpful up front to define justice since the whole text is about injustice. Defining it biblically, the word mishpat, judgment or justice, it, it has lots of different nuances and lots of different angles on it. But it all boils down to this. The idea of mishpat or justice in the Bible is to treat people with equity, to treat people equitably, that is fairly, justly. It's giving people what they are due, whether that be punishment or protection and care. It's punishing wrongdoing and it's caring for the victims of unjust treatment. That's justice in the Bible. Punishing wrongdoing, that's the negative half. And the positive half is caring for the victims of those unjust treatment. And what our professor Solomon sees when he looks out under the sun is both of those principles of justice being violated continually. That is, in the place where he would expect to see wrongdoing being punished, he doesn't see it being punished he sees it being evaded. That, in fact, the very place that he would expect to find judgment, namely in the courts of justice, he finds unrighteousness and wickedness. The very place of justice, the law courts, which he calls the place of judgment, is filled with injustice. The innocent are being declared guilty and the guilty are being declared innocent. But he also sees the second half of our definition of justice, that of caring for the victims of unjust treatment. He sees not them being cared for, but them being oppressed. So it's the whole, the whole range of all that the Bible is talking about with justice, both in the negative half and the positive half, both of those under the sun are being ignored, violated. And when he looks out at the world where he would expect to see the punishment of wrongdoing, he doesn't see it. And where he, he would expect to see caring for victims, 
He doesn't see it. Rather, he sees wickedness and oppression. And as we read the Bible, we see that God himself stands firmly against injustice. God hates injustice. God hates oppression. God hates the poorest of the poor getting poorer. God hates legal immigrants finding it hard to get a decent job. God hates school systems that fail and are broken with injustice. God hates fathers abusing their wives and children. God hates genocide. God hates terrorism. God hates slavery. God hates sex trafficking. God hates abortion. Those are just some examples of injustice. But what we read in the Bible is a steadfast opposition to that. And this causes problems for Solomon. Because what he sees and what he believes is a God of justice. He knows his Old Testament. And yet what he sees, on the other hand, is something quite different. He sees the wicked getting away with it. And he sees oppression taking place and God doing nothing about it. I thought God cared. Doesn't he write verses about it in the Bible? Why isn't he showing up? What's going on? And he even writes in chapter 5, verse 8, if you don't believe this is what he's thinking, he tells us this is exactly what he's thinking when he's thinking about injustice. Chapter 5, verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice, is that not both of the things he's just been talking about in chapter 3, verse 16? The oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province. Don't be astonished at the situation. Because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. So he's gotten to the point where he's not even surprised by it. Don't be surprised to find such oppression and wickedness. And why ought we not be surprised, biblically speaking? Because Ecclesiastes is not the only book in the Bible. And we can step outside of Ecclesiastes and go back to Genesis chapter 3 and see where all this comes from. Namely, the entrance of human sin into the world. And with human sin comes separation from God, comes social ills and problems and difficulties, the breakdown of families and social structures and righteousness in government and it turn, we, we turn in on ourselves and seek ourselves and our own agendas first. And so introduces the litany of injustice that runs throughout history all the way up to Solomon's time where he's observing it and writing about it. So that's what he sees. He sees injustice. He sees wickedness. He sees oppression where it ought not to be. Secondly, how does he feel about it? We've seen what he sees. How does he feel? He gives us the answer in verses 1 and 2 and 3 of chapter 4 as he looks out at oppression. 
Notice what he says in the second half of verse 1. Look at the tears. Look at the tears. See, Solomon's not just this esoteric, living in his mind philosopher who's just can talk about injustice and suffering like, eh, it's no big deal. Or it's just an issue of the mind. It's just an issue of the way people think. And no, he says, I look at the tears. I see the tears that run down the faces of those children. I see the tears that run down the faces of those men and those women. I've heard their sobs. I've heard their cries. I see the anguish on their face. For me, this isn't just some sort of academic exercise. This is life. This is real life. This is our world. And he says, I see the tears. And not just that. I see the tears on their faces and I see no one there to comfort them. No one. Notice that he said that. They have no one, no one, no one to comfort them. No one. No one there to wipe those tears. No one there to put an arm around that person. No one there to help get them out or out from underneath that oppression. Continual exploitation. Continual violence. Continual neglect. Brokenness. Pervading culture. Oppression. Tears. None to comfort. And then he sees something else. Power is with those who oppress them. So where are they going to get any help? Nowhere. Why? Because they don't have any power. Power is with those who oppress them. So their tears are not going away. And their comfort is not coming. Because the power is not with them. It's with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. He says it twice. Solomon's heart is breaking over injustice. And brothers and sisters, ours ought to too. If you're a Christian and you see oppression and you see injustice in the world and you see unfair treatment and your heart doesn't break, what are you? What are you? Our hearts ought to be moved. When's the last time you cried watching the news? Or is it all just politics to you? Or is it all just superficial? We grow so numb to it. But we ought to be like Solomon. And we look at this and we see this and our hearts break and we cry out, How long, O Lord? How long will this be the case in this world? Will this oppression exist? Will this 
injustice exist. And it's injustice that has absolutely nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with them. See, we get hot when it's against us. We get hot when injustice is done to us, when oppression is done to us. But what about people who are really oppressed? And what about people who are really the victims of unjust treatment? That's a whole other question. Because the person who perfectly modeled the tears, the comfort, the brokenheartedness was Jesus himself. Right? The feelings that Solomon has is just a picture of the feelings that our Savior has. Let me, let's turn us to just a couple of passages. I want us to hold our finger there in Ecclesiastes. Let's go to Matthew. And let's just see a couple of instances. Matthew chapter 9 first. Matthew 9. And... Verse 36, familiar passage. Matthew 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were weary and worn out like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they're an oppressed bunch. They're an oppressed bunch. And his heart was filled with compassion. No doubt he shed some tears. Also, Matthew chapter 11, verse 4 and 5. This is a description of Jesus' ministry. Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. Namely, this is what I've been doing the whole time. The blind see... The lame walk, those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. And if anyone is not offended because of me, he's blessed. (laughs) That his whole ministry is about relieving oppression. His whole ministry is about giving justice to the unjust areas of life. He's ministering to the marginalized. He's ministering to those who would be victims, candidates for oppression. The blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, the dead, those that no one appreciates, those that no one values, those that are cast aside. Jesus says, they're my target for ministry. They're my target for ministry. Because he has a heart for the oppressed, like his father. And finally, Luke 14. Luke 14. And this is where it translates to our ministry. It goes from his ministry to what he wants us to do. Luke 14 and verses 12 and 13. He also said to the one who had invited him, when you give a lunch or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, because they might invite you back and you'd be repaid. 
On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you'll be blessed because they can't repay you, and you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Notice he calls people that do that righteous. They're just. What would be unjust? What would be unjust for us as a church to do? Ignore those people and have potlucks with ourselves. That's unrighteous. Unrighteous. We should have a heart and an inclination toward inviting those that are going to make it comfortable, uncomfortable up in here. Uncomfortable around that table. And Jesus says, you'll be blessed. You'll be blessed and you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So he wants his church, his disciples, his people to have the same heart for the oppressed, for those who are victims of injustice as we, as he was and as his father is. Now let's go back to Ecclesiastes. So my point is that our feeling must not just stop with our feelings, right? It has to move into some sort of practical action at some level. And that's going to be different for all of us at at various levels, depending on what spheres that God has called us into and all of that. I get that. I'm not trying to make a one-dimensional application for everyone. But what I am saying is that that brokenheartedness that ought to characterize us when we look at injustice and see oppression ought to move us to action, to love them and to wipe their tears and to put an arm around them and comfort them. You have to give them money. Just put an arm around them. Be a friend. Wipe their tears away for, a little, for an afternoon. So that's how he feels. Finally, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. How does he cope? How does he cope? So we've seen what he sees. He sees injustice. He sees oppression. He feels brokenhearted. Nauseous even about the whole situation. And now he gives us some counsel about how he copes. And it's really, really sad. It's really sad. Because remember, he's looking at life under the sun. All right, first one. This is the first way he copes. Verse 17. I said to myself, this is what we always do when we see injustice and oppression and evil in the world. We tell ourselves things. You may not even realize you do it, but you do it. We tell ourselves things. We're counseling ourselves because we can't look at that for very long without coming up with an explanation for it or a reason or some hope. And Solomon does the same thing. says in verse 17, I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work. So he starts with the justice of God. Now, it, admittedly, it's somewhat difficult when you get into these passages to where, where, where Solomon is behaving like a skeptic and where Solomon is behaving like a believer. Because he's not schizophrenic, right? He's not like, I'm a schizophrenic and so am I. He doesn't do that, okay? It's like, wait, I thought he was talking about life under the sun and now he's inserting God. Well, get what he's doing. What he's trying to do is come under the sun and say, okay, let's look at life without God. 
But then let's see how even our very nature as human beings puts us above the sun when we look at injustice. Even the skeptics, they are raging against injustice when they see it. Where'd that come from? Image bearer. The skeptics who say they don't believe in God, you put enough suffering in front of him, they're going to get angry about it. But why should they be angry? They should not be angry. Because who's to say that's not right? Survival of the fittest? Why do you feel like injustice is such a problem? Why do you feel like oppression is such a problem? Because we're made in God's image. And we bear within our nature justice. We want to see people get what they deserve, whether that be punishment or protection. And so Solomon brings God in. We can't help but bring God in when we see this. I mean, even you, you watch stuff sometimes and you hear people talk and even the most rank unbelievers, the most op, 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 people who are most opposed to the Christian faith, when stuff like this comes and oppression and injustice comes in, they're way more willing to at least listen to the idea that God is judged. Now, they may have problems with the timing of his judgment. Say, well, why didn't he act then? And Solomon will get to that later, too, in the book. And in fact, in chapter 5, verse, uh, chapter five, we alluded to it before, but there's another passage in the book that talks about how evil is encouraged to continue because God doesn't immediately judge it. Sounds like First and Second Peter, doesn't it? But anyway, Solomon informs us that God will judge. The wicked will not get away with what they've done. God will judge in his own time. He will set things straight. He will intervene on behalf of the victims of injustice. Why can we be assured of that? Because God's character is justice. And he will not violate his character. Give you a couple verses. For instance, Psalm chapter 140 or Psalm 146, seven to nine. He executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves those who are, who live justly. The Lord watches over the immigrant and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked or Deuteronomy chapter 10. The Lord, your God defends the cause that is he, he, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. So you say, if you don't see that now in this life, and we don't that much, Solomon looks forward and says, God has a time for it. See what he says there? God will judge the righteous and the wicked since there is a time for every activity and every work. That was John's sermon last week. Right? There's a time for every purpose under heaven. There's a time to be born, a time to die. Chapter 3, 1 to 8. And he steps back and he says, well, there's a time for judgment too. There's a time for judgment. And so sometimes God judges people in this life. Sometimes he does not. But payday, someday. 
Wrong will not go unpunished, and right will not go unrewarded forever. In the end, Jesus Christ, according to Acts 17, will judge all people. And all accounts will be settled. Psalm 37, verses 12 and 13 tells us, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. What are you going to do about it? The wicked plot. They, they design a scheme to oppress and commit injustice, and then they get in their face and say, what are you going to do about it? You don't have any power. What are you going to do? Bring it on. And they can't do anything about it. So what's God going to do about that? He laughs at them. He gets in their face and mocks them. That's what it says in Psalm 37. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked for he knows their day is coming. And they're going to get in the ring with God. Good luck. Good luck. And God is going to get the last laugh. They're laughing. They're gnashing their teeth. God's justice is coming. While we may not see it in time, justice will be served and will be carried out in eternity. So rather than simply getting angry about all the oppression we see in the world, we can trust God to make things right in the end. This does not mean there's never a place for pursuing justice in this life. There is. But we will find that even our very best efforts will not bring an end to all oppression and may in some cases stir it up even more. But Genesis 18.25 assures us with this promise, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? The answer is, yes, he will. And even Solomon himself ends the book of, of, this, of the book, uh, this book of the Bible on that note. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, if you want to turn there. Very last verse. He wraps it up with this idea. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. There it is. He owns it. He believes it. And that brings him comfort and ability to cope because he knows that in the end, nobody's getting away with any of this. Secondly, a second way he copes besides God's justice is God's purpose. He quote, he, he copes with God's purpose and he gives that purpose in verse 18. He says, I said to myself, so this is his second kind of counsel to himself. He, he says, God, ju- God's justice, verse 17, now God's purpose, verse 18. I said to myself, this happens concerning people, that is injustice and wickedness and oppression. Why? So that God may test them and they may see for themselves that they are like animals or beasts. Your translation may say. So God is allowing suffering in the world to, to show us that we're like animals. By allowing wickedness to fester in society, God is testing people so that it will be evident that they are but animals. Listen to Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence, this is the verse I was referring to earlier, because the sentence against a criminal act is not carried out quickly, 
The heart of people is filled with the desire to commit crime. (laughs) It it doesn't happen that fast. So what happens? I'm going to get away with it. Let's raid the store. I know the flood. I know Hurricane Katrina happened, but let's get in there. It's Radio Shack for crying out loud. So because it's not carried out swiftly, does that incline people's hearts toward good? No. It inclines people's heart toward evil. That's human nature, brothers and sisters, under the sun. That's in Adam sinfulness, right? That's the way we operate. That's our MO. If we can get away with it and get some advantage for ourselves, take it. By all means, take it. You only live once. So is that not animalistic? I mean, a dog, if he can get away with doing a little doo-doo behind the chair, he'll do it, right? I mean, doing something just because you won't immediately get caught is not something that humans are supposed to do. Image bearers of God, noble, honorable, height of God's creation. If I can get away with it, I'm going to do it. That's animalistic, Solomon says. That reveals that we are like animals. And you know, this is not, the Bible compares man and beast a lot, man and animals. And I just want to pick out one verse from Psalm 73. I think it's a familiar verse to you. When you hear it, you, you think, yeah, I've heard that before. God uses suffering to show us who we really are. In Psalm 73, when Asaph is suffering with envy and various other things, he says in Psalm 73, verse 22, I was brutish and arrogant. I was like a beast before you. I was like an animal. I behaved not like a human being when I was in my sin. I behaved like an animal in my sin. And how did I behave like it? Because I was brutish and arrogant. Brothers and sisters, that attitude characterizes all those who commit wickedness and oppression. Arrogance. Nothing's going to happen. It's that heightened sense of our own superiority and value and worth that causes oppression and injustice. Ask Hitler. So that whole idea is animalistic, Solomon says. And this suffering and injustice in this world, and one of the reasons that God lays his hands off of it for a while, is to help us be convinced of the fact that we are as evil as the Bible says we are. Here's what Tim Keller says about this very issue in his uh, new book on suffering. He says, I've learned that many people find God through affliction and suffering. As many who reject him, as who reject him in suffering. They find that adversity moves them toward God rather than away. Troubled times awaken them out of their haunted sleep of spiritual self-sufficiency. In other words, out of their arrogance. (laughs) Into a serious search for the divine. Suffering plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. 
It's an exaggeration to say that no one finds God unless suffering comes into their lives, but it's not a big one. When pain and suffering come upon us, we finally see not only that we are not in control of our lives, but that we never were. Over the years, I've come to realize that adversity did not merely lead people to believe in God's existence. It pulled those who already believed into a deeper experience of God's reality, love, and grace. One of the main ways we move from an abstract knowledge about God to a personal encounter with God is a li- as a living reality is through the furnace of affliction. And brothers, there we see, brothers and sisters, there we see God's purpose, one of God's purposes in our suffering and in the fact that injustice and oppression are present in the world so that mercy, grace, and love of God could become a living reality in people's lives and not an abstract form of knowledge. Because what suffering and injustice does is it pushes that down into the life. It pushes that doctrinal idea into the heart. As C.S. Lewis famously put it, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. You want to hear the voice of God? Pain is the way to hear it the loudest. Believers understand, we understand many doctrinal truths in our mind, but those truths seldom make the journey down into our hearts except through disappointment, failure, and loss. As a man, Keller concludes, quote, as a man who seemed about to lose both his career and his family once said to me, I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need to get through, but you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And therein lies one of God's purposes for injustice and oppression and suffering that, that our animalistic behavior would be revealed and that we would see our desperate need for him. Well, he compares us to animals in two ways. He says our destiny is the same and our place is the same. And that's verses 19 and 20. He says for the fate of people and the fate of animals is the same as one dies. So dies the other. They all have the same breath. Now he's coming back down under the sun again. And he's thinking about life devoid of relationship with God. And he's saying from a humanistic, naturalistic, materialistic worldview that just views humans as biological things without souls and eternal spirits and all that stuff. We both, we're just like animals and we die. So if you believe in a God of, like if you want justice in the world, if you, if you have a desire to see justice happen and you don't believe in God, get rid of that idea because human beings are just like the animals and they're going in the ground. They're going to die. And then he presses it even further in verse 19 when he says, as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile, says the secularist. If you don't want to believe in God, if you don't want to entertain the idea that God is a God of judgment, 
All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to just. So get rid of the idea that justice is going to happen. But then, verse 21, he adds another part. Who knows if the spirit of people rises upward and the spirit of animals goes down toward the earth? If we live life apart from revelation from God, we have no hope of knowing what's going to happen after death. It's all hogwash. It's like John Fogarty's new song, Mystic Highway, which I like John Fogarty a lot too, by the way. And you should hear Mystic Highway. It came out in May. You know who John Fogarty is? Lead singer of Creedence Clearwater Revival, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame musician. Listen to the lyrics of Mystic Highway. Lately, I began to wonder how it's all going to end. After all the flash and thunder when it's gone with the wind. All the stars in the heavens, they've been there to light my way. Without knowing where I'm going, probably get there anyway. Mystic Highway, take me home. The old road has been my life, my companion and my friend. Like a rope around the universe, ain't no beginning, ain't no end. Out across the constellations, there's a place behind the sun. Everything is connected, everything and everyone. That's not Christian, by the way. <laughs> That's panentheistic. All the stars that I'm under know the way I feel tonight. All the miles I've been traveling headed back toward the light. That's hogwash. It's a great song, but it's hogwash. <laughs> Why? It's, it's encapsulating the very thing that Solomon is teaching us this morning. So if you don't think people still believe stuff like in the Bible, there's a modern day example, okay? And the spirit of animals goes downward to the earth. Who knows? You seem pretty sure. But he has to insert the word probably. Brothers and sisters, this is not what Solomon truly believes. Chapter 12, verse 7, assures us of what he believes about this. When he says, And the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Don't be confused about what Solomon really believes, okay? He believes that the spirit is going back to the God who gave it, not some mystic highway behind the sun. It's going back to God. And there it will meet its judgment. That's Solomon's worldview. But we don't have any hope of real judgment and justice taking place in the earth unless we believe that. And we do. If you're a believer, that is your comfort. That is your hope. That God does have a purpose in my suffering, and it's to wean me off myself and onto him. At least that's one purpose. To see what I am in myself and to, to recognize in brokenness and humility my desperate need for God. But then secondly, it's God's judgment that comforts me with the reality that the Spirit will go back to the God who gave it. But if we live life under the sun... If, if, if we have a secular outlook on life devoid of God and relationship with God, we've got no hope that that justice for which we long will ever be satisfied. In fact, who knows whether the spirit of man is going to go back up and the spirit of the beast is going to go down. 
we all die and we all go to the same place. You see what he's arguing? This is why Solomon is a great apologist. He's leading you again to a place where you will come up empty. He's bringing you to that spot where you will say, where if you're skeptical, he's going to bring you all the way up. He said, you, you have a desire for justice. Doesn't this make you weep? Doesn't this bring tears to your eyes? Doesn't this make you broken? Doesn't this make you rage on the inside? Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. You want to live life under the sun. Well, come on over here then. Let's see where it ends. They're going to die just like animals. And who knows whether their spirit's going to go back. You want to have that life? It doesn't make sense. Why would you, why would you have those feelings if that were true? See what he's doing? He's entering in to a defense for the rightness of life above the sun, of life with God, of a life where a world in which God and his reality makes, is the only truth that makes any kind of sense. And so that's where we end today with Solomon taking us down another, another dead end. But he doesn't leave us there. And this is what I'll close with. Verse 21. He takes us back to his refrain that he's been coming back to again and again and again, which is to enjoy the life that God has given you under the sun. Now, if that is all there is, you better enjoy it because it's all that you're going to get. But even as Christians, as believers in God, we don't have to be paralyzed by the injustice and the oppression that we see. Why? We know God is up to some great things in injustice, don't we? Because our salvation hinged on it. We're saved by an act of injustice. Aren't we? We are forgiven, cleansed from all of our sin because Jesus was unjustly criminalized and killed. And God, according to his perfect foreknowledge, allowed it to happen and permitted it to happen and willed that it would happen. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. And yet here we stand. Those who are criminals, those who oppressed Christ in our sin, those who committed great injustice against our God, those who brought tears to Jesus's face. And we should have been left as orphans with no one to comfort us. We should have been cast out of the family of God. We should have been put in hell forever where we had suffered justly for our sins. And yet God in Christ treated him the way we deserve to be treated and did it in a way that didn't violate justice. But he did it through unjust means or unjust means at the hands of sinful men. Think about that. God must be up to something great with injustice. If he can use it in the, the most critical point of the universe to turn the whole world upside down and to reshape history and to re, begin refashioning and remaking and redeeming this earth through an act of injustice and oppression. Our God is a great God. Our God is a good God. Our God is a gracious God. Our God is a loving God. And our God is a just God. And he's not any of those things in isolation from any of the other ones. And may we be shaped and conformed and even may God use this sermon to, to, to make us more like him in that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had to consider justice, injustice. We thank you that you are the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus.
In his name we pray, amen.